Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Swimsuit? Check. Sunscreen? Check. Phone charger? Check. Don't forget to pack the 5-Hour Energy. It fits great in a pocket or carry-on, and the alert feeling will help you arrive ready for anything. Now get 20% off when you use code 5HETRAVEL at 5HourEnergy.com. Expires April 30th. One-time use only. Not valid with other discounts. Remember, visit 5HourEnergy.com and use code 5HETRAVEL to save 20%. Hello, everybody. This is Jennifer Matteris. And before I get started with the episode today, I'd just like to say a quick apology. Earlier this month, I got hit with this year's terrible monster flu and was basically useless for about a week. And even now, I'm still waiting for my throat to get completely better. If I sound really strange, it's because every time I breathe in, I feel like I'm about to cough. So if I sound weird, that's why. But the time that I was too sick to do anything put me out of the habit of my normal patterns, so it's taken me a bit to get a new episode researched and written, to the point where I switched from one of the two request episodes I still have to work on to get a little bit out of my mental rut by doing a different disaster. Long story short, get your flu shot, kids. Now, if you'd like to help support the podcast, as usual, and the poor, still a little bit sick podcaster, you can do so with a one-time donation through PayPal at disasterareaatmail.com or on a per-episode basis through Patreon at www.patreon.com slash disasterareapodcast. You can also follow the podcast on Facebook at Disaster Area Podcast and on Twitter and Instagram at Disaster Area Pod. And please think about rating and reviewing the podcast on iTunes or whatever podcast app that you listen to us on. And as always, the sources for each new episode can be found at disasterareapodcast.wordpress.com. With that taken care of, thank you very much for listening, and welcome to Disaster Area. Episode 67, United Airlines Flight 232, July 19th, 1989, 111 deceased, 172 injured. As much as I love a bad disaster movie, sometimes a wonderful disaster movie is what you need. The movie Fearless is one such disaster movie. If you've never seen it, Jeff Bridges plays an architect on a flight which crashes in a cornfield, with Rosie Perez in an Academy Award-nominated turn as a mother who loses her young son in the crash. The movie opens with the aftermath, with Jeff Bridges and other survivors emerging from a cornfield to a scene of devastation. Later on in the movie, towards the end, we see Jeff Bridges' memories of the crash, one of the most frightening plane crash sequences ever put to film. 
This crash is based very closely on a real disaster, a plane crash which haunted many people my age due to the horrifying recording of the disaster which played over and over again everywhere you looked. Now, the DC-10 was a popular plane, probably due to its reputation as an old man's plane, which was comparatively easy to fly. In the late 1980s, the airline industry watched over 400 DC-10s, which were flying from one place to another throughout the world. However, several notorious accidents involving DC-10s meant the plane did not exactly have the best of reputations. An issue with the locking mechanism on the DC-10's cargo doors led to one near crash and one actual crash in the 1970s. On June 12, 1972, the rear left cargo door of American Airlines Flight 96 blew out, rapidly decompressing the plane and leaving the flight crew, led by pilot Bryce McCormick, who, according to the one episode of May Day, where they are air crash investigation, if you're American, uh, where they talk about this, somebody said that he basically had the most pilot name ever, and that's definitely a pilot name if there ever was one struggling to safely land the plane. Now, they succeeded with no major injuries or loss of life. In fact, the only passenger on the plane to seriously suffer in the Windsor incident, as it came to be known, was already dead. A casket carrying a deceased woman home in the cargo hold flew out when the cargo door ruptured and landed near Windsor, Canada. The problem with the cargo door's locking mechanism was soon discovered, and changes were made so airport employees closing the doors after loading cargo for each flight would be able to double-check the doors were safely locked tight. The fix, however, wasn't as airtight as the airline believed. Two years later, on March 3, 1974, Turkish Airlines Flight 981 had just departed from a stopover at Orly Airport in Paris on its way to Heathrow in London when the improperly hooked latch on that DC-10's rear cargo door also released under the pressure of flight, sending the cargo door flying out and once again causing a rapid decompression. However, unlike with the Windsor incident, Flight 981 experienced damage to cables running through the ship like tendons, snapping them and making it impossible for the crew to operate the rudder, elevators, and two of the engines. With far less control than the previous flight had, Flight 981 crashed in Armenonville Forest in northern France, almost obliterating all 346 people on board. I didn't make a note of it, but if you look on the Wikipedia page, it basically says that there were only about 30 or 40 complete bodies that were able to be identified. One of the worst plane crashes in aviation history also occurred to a DC-10 as it departed from O'Hare Airport in Chicago on May 25, 1979. Only two months earlier, American Airlines Flight 191 went through maintenance, during which the left wing's engine and pylon were removed using a large forklift, a maneuver which jostled the parts and caused unseen damage to the connection when the plane was re- engine was reattached, reattached to the plane. I mean, you can imagine, it, using a forklift to move this engine up and down is not exactly going to make for delicate repair work. As the plane took off on May 25th, the engine in question snapped free and tumbled upward over the wing, severing necessary hydraulic systems as it came free of the plane. 
Flight 191 only just got off the ground, the plane moving too quickly to abort takeoff, even though the flight crew knew immediately that something was wrong. It was basically going too fast to stop, and so they had to go up into the air and take off. Now, the intention was to fly around and attempt to land once again, but Flight 191 soon veered in the direction of the damaged wing, crashing just short, uh, just after the runway. 271 people died on American Airlines Flight 191, along with two people on the ground, the deadliest av- aviation accident in the United States, not including 9-11, uh, of course, although that wasn't an accident. However, the DC-10, which we're talking about today, had a very good record. For 17 years and over 43,000 flight hours, the DC-10 with the registration number November 1819, whatever U is, flew for American Airlines without any serious incidents. At 165 tons, the $21 million DC-10 had two wing-mounted engines and another, the number two engine, mounted as part of the tail. Now, this DC-10 departed gate B-9 at Stapleton Airport in Denver, Colorado, and left the runway at 2.09 p.m. on July 19, 1989, as United Airlines Flight 232. Flight 232 was one of hundreds of flights leaving Stapleton Airport that day due to the busy summer travel season, and it also had an added aspect, making the flight more special than normal. July 19th was United Airlines Children's Day promotion. Children under 14 years of age could fly for just a penny. Now, I have two sources that tell me two different things about this, that either they could just fly for a penny, which meant they could fly alone as well, uh, and there were another source that I had, there was another source that I had that said that they would need to fly with an adult who had bought a ticket as well. So I, basically there, uh, I do see that there were several children who were alone on the flight, but the, the gist is basically that there were more children than normal on this particular flight. Flight 232 would be traveling to Philadelphia with a stopover in Chicago, carrying 285 uh, passengers and 11 crew members. Uh, Because of the Children's Day promotion, 52 of those passengers were just children. Uh, I think I said 285 passengers. I believe it it was uh, 285 total. Uh, No, it wasn't. Never mind. (laughs) Having a moment because I'm trying to to make sure I don't cough into the microphone. Uh, The flight crew that day was led by Captain Al Haynes, an experienced pilot with 29,967 flight hours with United Airlines, 7,190 of those flight hours being in DC-10s. With him was co-pilot Bill Records, who had about 20,000 flight hours, and flight engineer Dudley Dvorak, who had 15,000 flight hours under his belt. Before the crew could leave, they just needed to check to make sure one problem had been taken care of. On the plane's previous flight, the crew had noticed a minor electrical problem in the galley. Before this flight could take off, an engineer examined the issue and was able to give the flight crew assurances that the electrical problem would not be an issue again. So that was one thing they wouldn't have to worry about. For over an hour, Flight 232 was uneventful as it took off and rose to its cruising altitude of 37,000 feet. Meal service began, and by quarter after three, everyone was working on finishing their meal, lunch, I guess, but a little late in the afternoon for lunch. 
But at 3.16 p.m., the tone of the entire flight abruptly changed as a loud blast shook the rear of the plane. Some terrified passengers immediately thought there must have been a bomb that went off, but they couldn't be sure. Inside the plane, there was no visible sign of what was wrong with Flight 232 other than the sudden bumpy ride. In the cockpit, the flight crew immediately realized engine number two was malfunctioning, and Captain Haynes moved to shut it down, since the DC-10 was perfectly capable of flying with only its other two engines on the wings in the case of an emergency. However, flight engineer Dvorak soon spotted a larger problem. The DC-10's three hydraulic systems were all empty, an impossible issue to overcome considering the hydraulics control the plane's steering mechanisms, the flaps on the front of the wings, the rudder at the rear of the tail, the ailerons on the back of the wings, and the elevators extending from the tail. Co-pilot records also couldn't get his flight controls to respond, and the plane was starting to bank sharply to the right. There was an interview that I saw with uh, one of the members of the crew that uh, we will be talking about shortly, who said basically that there's a certain amount of banking that the uh, the airlines uh, allow so as not to frighten the passengers. Obviously, you're not going to bank a 747 or a DC-10 or whatever it is that you're flying at a 50-degree angle and tilt people out of their seats. Uh, about 30 degrees is about what is expected. They were going at an angle of, of about 40 degrees. And so the crew deployed the air-driven generator in an effort to restart the number one auxiliary uh, hydraulic pump, but it didn't work. Captain Haynes' controls weren't working either, so he thought fast and reached for the throttles for the working engines. Now, imagine for a moment that you're in a three-legged race. It's you and a friend, and you're Two legs in the middle are tied together if you don't know what a three-legged race is. If you speed up, your partner falls behind and needs to catch up. If you slow down, your partner moves ahead and now you need to catch up. Either way, you as a pair can steer in one direction or another based on one of you slowing down or speeding up. The trick Captain Haynes tried would work much the same way. With two working engines on the wings, controlling the speed with the throttles provided them with a rudimentary form of steering. Increase the speed on the engine to your right, and the plane turns left. Increase it on the left engine, and the plane turns right. Increase the speed on both, and the plane gains lift and goes up, and drop the speed to lower the plane. But this wasn't exactly an ideal way to fly a plane, and the captain soon realized the plane would only make right-hand turns as well. If they wanted to go anywhere that was to their left, they would need to turn the plane in a wide circle to their right to get there. But turning right means they lost altitude in the process. At this point, co-pilot records contacted air traffic control and informed them of the dire situation on Flight 232, which was dropping at a rate of 200 meters per minute. After debating several options, they could go to Lincoln, Nebraska, or Omaha, Nebraska, or Des Moines, Air traffic control directed them to their nearest airport, which was Sioux Gateway, a small airport servicing Sioux City, Iowa. Sioux Gateway did not normally accept planes as big as DC-10s, but one thing it had going for it was preparedness training. 
The airport conducted a mass casualty exercise on October 10th, 1987, practicing on evacuating 90 casualties of a mock plane crash, I believe it was. The airport conducted its most recent drill on June 16th, which was only a month before Flight 232's engine failed. The tower there at Sioux Gateway contacted Flight 232 and also gave them information on nearby highways just in case they couldn't even make it to the airport and just had to hope they could land on an interstate highway. Uh, But from the uh, voice recording, it sounds as though the captain and the flight crew were basically like, no, we're going to try for the airport. Captain Haynes got on the intercom and informed the passengers that one of the engines had failed. What he didn't do at the time was tell them that the plane's control systems were not working. At 3.25 p.m., the airport's fire department received word that a disabled DC-10 was on its way to Sioux Gateway. In just under 10 minutes, the fire department for the airport maneuvered its nine vehicles out onto its designated emergency locations near the runway. Other rescue personnel and media outlets throughout Sioux City and the surrounding areas rushed rushed to the scene to provide support and cover the story. So you have a lot of the, excuse me, the fire departments and the air, uh, the uh, um, ambulances, police, everybody is heading to the airport along with reporters from local television stations and Um, from local newspapers, people with cameras, which is why we have the footage that we have today. At about this time, Flight 232 begins to do something we saw previously in Japan, Airlines Flight 123, another flight struck by a loss of hydraulics. Flight 232 begins to go up and down, up and down, much like it's on an invisible roller coaster, which is called the fugoid motion. Lead flight attendant Jan Brown Lohr entered the cockpit when summoned by the flight crew to find the three men struggling with the controls. Captain Haynes requested that she and the other flight attendants begin preparing the cabin and the passengers for an emergency landing. Terrified, Brown Lohr went back into the cabin to inform the other flight attendants, one at a time, rather than called together in the galley so as not to scare the rest of the passengers. The way she tells it, it was basically she kind of walked up to each one and leaned close and was like, you know, we need to prepare the plane for an emergency that sort of thing, not to scare any of the passengers. But every story that she tells and every interview that she's in sounds, um, makes it sound, makes it very clear, excuse me, that she was absolutely terrified. At this point, a male passenger seated in 5F, which was the last seat in first class near the window, uh, he got her intention. He said, don't worry about this. This thing flies fine on two engines. We just simply need to get to a lower altitude. We'll be fine. Uh, She replied, oh no, both the pilots are trying to fly the plane, and the captain has told us that we've lost all hydraulics. Knowing full well what that meant, the man offered his assistance. Now, the man's name was Denny Fitch, and if you're going to have anyone on board your out-of-control DC-10 offer their assistance, you couldn't do better than Denny Fitch who was a DC-10 training instructor on his way home from a training session. Denny Fitch had about 3,000 flight hours with United on the DC-10, and had just started as a training check airman for United on April 1st of that year, working with pilots during their yearly checks in a simulator to make sure they understood what to do in a case of emergency. When he'd arrived at Stapleton Airport that day to go home to Chicago, he had a choice between two different planes— 
Flight 232 at gate B9 and another flight at gate B7, which left five minutes earlier. For some reason, as he put it, chance or God or whatever, he took that flight instead of the one at B7. No, excuse me. Unsurprisingly, Brown Lore immediately led him up to the cockpit. Um, I say that. It was basically, he, he offered his assistance. She went up to the cockpit. And according to him, she came back out again and looked down the aisle and kind of waved him frantically toward her. So I don't know exactly if that's exactly what she did, given the story that she tells, which is basically that, you know, she was very, she was trying to remain calm and not trying to scare the other passengers. And I feel like standing there at the front of first class in front of all of those passengers and waving her hands frantically would really be a good idea. So Denny Fitch entered the cockpit at 3.29 p.m. to find both the captain and the co-pilot struggling to keep the plane as steady as possible, using so much strength that he could see the muscles and tendons in their arms standing out, their knuckles were white. Co-pilot Records was trying so hard to push the steering column forward to get the nose to go down that he literally was pushing his knee into it to no avail. Once updated on the situation, Denny Fitch knew more than anyone else just how dire the plane's chances were. There was simply no procedure for dealing with a plane losing all of its hydraulics like that. Going back to the Japan Airlines Flight 123 episode, that's what made the Japanese flight crew's efforts that day impressive. While only four people would end up surviving that crash, it was four more than anyone could have expected given the uncontrollability of the aircraft. And the Flight 123 crew managed to keep the plane in the air an astonishing 32 minutes. This is even more astounding given the fact that Flight 123's decompression and the resultant oxygen loss and hypoxia suffered by the pilots would have affected them. So you, you have to imagine you're trying to fly a, fly a plane, there's something really wrong with it, and then you start feeling drunk. And that was how bad things were in that aircraft, and they somehow still managed to keep it in the air for 32 minutes and save four people, which there were over 500 people on that plane. It's a, a great loss, but it's a miracle that those four people managed to survive at all. At the very least, Flight 232 didn't have the added problems of the plane being decompressed to deal with. Denny Fitch went back into the cabin to look out the windows and do a visual inspection of the plane's wings. When he returned, he told the captain, per the NTSB report, that the inboard ailerons were slightly up and not damaged, that the spoilers were locked down, and that there was no movement in the primary flight control surfaces. So basically, they're set a certain way, they're not moving. He then offered to take over on the throttles for Captain Haynes to help out. His job would be to put the plane into a series of loops to the right, which was, remember, the only direction that they could turn, using only the throttles to hopefully line them up with one of the runways at Sioux Gateway. What made things even more complicated was that the navigation station at the airport was out of service, making the approach controller's directions the only way the crew had to figure out in which direction to go to Sioux Gateway. Flight engineer Dvorak patched through to SAM, which is um, SAM, the maintenance group for the airplane in San Francisco. If anyone knew what to do in this situation, it would be the folks at SAM, who had every possible document and manual necessary to determine a solution to any problem which might pop up on the DC-10. However, whenever 
flight engineer Dvorak would connect to them to inform them they'd lost all hydraulics, they would respond with, okay, we have a communication problem. That can't be the case. The DC-10's three hydraulic systems were meant to be redundancies to one another, backing up for the loss of one system by providing the flight crew with another. You know, instead of just having one, and if that one fails, you're out of luck, they would have three, so if one fails, at least you have the other two. Having all three fail at the same time was unthinkable, and those at SAM knew it. After the crash, they would tell the flight crew, we didn't know what to say to you because we were talking to four dead men. At 3.42 p.m., a flight engineer Dvorak went back to the cabin himself to look out the windows at the empennage, which is the horizontal stabilizing structures on the tail that look a lot like a smaller set of wings. When he returned, he informed the others that he could see damage to the stabilizers on both sides of the plane. In the cabin, Jan Brown Lore and the rest of the flight attendants prepared the passengers for an emergency landing. Four of the children on board were lap children, the ones too young to have their own seats, and so their parents were told to place the children on the floor and hold them there in accordance with United Airlines' official procedure. The flight would need a long runway because it was obviously an emergency flight in a big airplane, so air traffic control directed them to runway 31, which is about 8,999 feet long. But as the flight crew continued to do the looping maneuvers necessary to land the plane, they emerged from the final loop with a problem. They could see Sioux Gateway straight ahead, but at this point, they weren't lined up with runway 31. They were in line with the much shorter 6,600-foot runway 22, a cracked old World War II-era runway which had been closed for years. A big yellow X had even been painted on it, so planes knew not to land there. It was also the runway on which the fire trucks, ambulances, and other rescue equipment responding to the the emergency had been parked to await the plane's arrival. So all these, you know, fire trucks and and, uh, ambulances and all these rescue equipment that were there to help in the uh, aftermath of this disaster were lined up on the runway that they were about to land on. So what ended up happening was that these emergency personnel look up, they see the plane arriving, clearly they are about to land on the runway that they're parked on. So all of these emergency personnel have to hurry up, get in their vehicles, and drive away from that particular runway onto a different taxiway, another runway, just to get out of the way. Flight 232's, uh, Flight 233 was going far too fast, uh, going 250 miles per hour, which is about 100 miles per hour faster than their suggested landing speed, but the flight crew simply couldn't slow the plane down without the use of the flaps. As the crew worked to attempt to safely land the speeding plane, Denny Fitch said, I'll tell you what, we'll have a beer when this is all done. Captain Haynes responded, well, I don't drink, but I'll sure as shit have one. Shortly after this, Captain Haynes got onto the intercom to speak to the passengers and said, Ladies and gentlemen, this is Captain Al Haynes speaking. As you are probably aware right now, we are having some control difficulties with the plane. We're attempting an emergency landing in Sioux City. We'll be landing in approximately eight minutes. We've got about as much control over the plane as we can get, but I need you to understand that this is going to be a crash landing. Please review your emergency procedures. This is going to be worse than anything you have been through before. You need to be ready. 
We will do everything in our power to, to uh, get everybody on the ground, but we need your co- cooperation. At this point, Flight 232 is only 9,000 feet from the ground and only 10 minutes from Sioux, City, Sioux Gateway. In an attempt to slow the plane down somewhat by adding drag, the flight lowered the landing gear, but without working hydraulics, they needed to do this manually until gravity pulled down on the gear and hopefully locked them into place, which is what was supposed to happen. Even with the lowered gear, however, Flight 232 was still flying over 70 knots faster than they should be for a safe landing speed. Flight 232 was descending at 1,600 feet per minute, but if it weren't going as fast as the crew could push it, the nose would drop and the plane would just fall right out of the sky. So the crew had no choice but to make their landing at a high speed, which could only, uh, which only, which would only further complicate an already dangerous situation. Flight engineer Dvorak informed the tower at Sioux Gateway that they were two minutes from landing, and the tower told them, United 232 Heavy, the wind's currently 360 at 11360 at 11. You're cleared to land on any runway. Captain Haynes, in a brief moment of levity, laughed, said, Roger, and then added, you want to be particular and make it a runway, huh? Shortly after this, Captain Haynes got on the intercom to the passengers and gave the order to brace. At this point, the flight crew were about to land a plane they could not steer and would barely be able to break once they did land. Just seconds before the plane could touch down, the nose of Flight 232 dropped, as did the right wing. Denny Fitch pushed both throttles forward in an attempt to push the nose of the plane up. On the cockpit voice recorder, the ground warning alarm can be heard as Flight 232 approaches the runway. Captain Haynes can be heard shouting, left, 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 over and over again. And then he yells to everybody to stay in the brace position before yelling, God. At this point, it cuts out. After an impressive, an impressive 44 minutes of fighting to keep the injured United Flight 232 in the air, the plane finally touched down on runway 22 at precisely 4 o'clock p.m. In images of the plane at this point, it's clear that the engine's fan cowling and the tail cone at the rear of the plane are gone, appearing as a dark spot at the rear of the white plane. In photos taken as the plane is flying overhead, the punctures in the rear horizontal stabilizers stabilizers can be seen dotting their surface. So basically, that empennage, that... that uh, those little tiny wings that are sticking out of the plane, you could see little puncture holes as if somebody had shot them with a shotgun. And the rear of the plane, the tail cone, where that's, um, the back of that engine would be, it's gone. It's absolutely gone. So video of the plane's approach looks at first like any other landing. Flight 232 appears to be level and lined up with the runway, at least as far as you can see. Cameras from two news crews at different angles follow Flight 232 as it goes lower, lower, until to the one camera crew farther away. It's, it looks like it's about like two or three blocks away. Uh, it's, it's following this plane, and finally the plane disappears behind what looks like a warehouse. The other camera is standing to the other side of a mesh fence toward the far end of the runway. So it's kind of the as the plane is landing and going forward, it would be off to the plane's left um, at the far end of the uh, runway. What this camera doesn't catch is Flight 
232's initial touchdown on the runway, which was left of center, angled to the right, the right wing slamming into the ground before the rest of the plane. The stricken wing and the right landing gear snapped off, and in the process, thousands of gallons of jet fuel spilled out and caught fire. Inside the cabin, flames rolled overhead as the tail broke off as well. The camera at the far end of the runway catches what follows next, the image partially obscured by this large yellow sign. So if you've ever... If you're not sure if you've ever seen this video, if you can imagine a video of a plane crash with a large yellow sign that basically says no intruders past this point, that's the video that you're thinking of. The plane can be seen tipping forward as though attempting to do a headstand, enormous flames engulfing a large section of the fuselage. It appears to skid along on its tip for several hundred feet before a wing catches the ground, dragging it along for almost 2,000 feet just on the tip of the wing. Then the wreck spirals out of control, spewing thick black smoke as it comes to rest in pieces across runway 22. That's what it looks like. They're, where these pieces land, it, looks, it may be different than what it looks like, but that's what you see. What cannot be seen that well in the footage is the cockpit snapping off, as Denny Fitch would later put it, like a pencil tip. The main section of the fuselage can be seen rolling down the runway until it stops on its back further down. If you squint, you can see what looks like a tire bouncing out of the billowing smoke along the runway after the fuselage. Almost immediately, the rescue personnel waiting on runway 31 rushed to help the injured survivors spread across the runway and wandering through the cornfield beside runway 22. At first, they really couldn't see these survivors. I mean, obviously, they had ended up in the cornfield. It was this thing where it was obscured. I mentioned the movie Fearless. It really does take a lot from this particular crash in that the fuselage ended up in this cornfield, and so when people would walk out, they were basically wandering through the corn, trying to find where they were supposed to go. So at first, the rescuers were only going for the people that they could see on the runway. And then all of a sudden, you know, people start filtering out of the corn. The center of the fuselage rolled down the runway with the left wing still attached, rolled over runway 17 slash... Uh, 17-35, and ended up in a cornfield. The snapped-off tail section had kept going down the runway until it stopped on taxiway L near the number one and number three engines, which were uh, closer to the runway. The problem number two engine ended up on taxiway J, 1,850 feet from the point the plane first struck the runway. The flight crew remained trapped in the twisted metal of the cockpit, which ended its journey at the edge of runway 17-35 and was the last part of the jet rescue workers were able to get to about 35 minutes after the crash. Every picture that I've seen of the cockpit uh, looks a lot like the, um, the interpretation that you see in a TV movie that was made about the crash called, um, it, it, it has a couple of different names. They're the uh, copy that I found on YouTube, which I've been looking for forever, and I finally found it. It's called A Thousand Heroes. Um, it basically shows the cockpit. It looked like a big hunk of metal. It didn't look like a cockpit. It looked just like a big piece of wreckage that it didn't have form it didn't have 
something where you could point to it and say, that's the cockpit. But apparently, um, in the TV movie, they uh, show that the uh, somebody was stopping there, one of the rescue workers was stopping there, and just happened to overhear one of the crew members inside talking. And so they were able to go and, and extricate the four men who were in there. The rescuers needed cutting tools to remove Captain Haynes, Denny Fitch, and the others inside the cockpit. It would take an hour to remove all four injured men from the wreckage. It would actually take two hours to put out the fire that was burning in the fuselage. 111 people would die when United Airlines Flight 232 tumbled end over end after landing as best it could in Sioux City on July 19, 1989. The dead included one flight attendant and 11 children, including one of the lap children whose mother, flight attendant Jan Brown Lore, told, per United's emergency policy, to place on the floor of the plane and hold there right before the plane crash landed and tumbled ass over tea kettle into a burning heap. The miracle is that given the enormous destruction wrought on the plane as it crashed, more than half of those on board, 185 passengers and crew, somehow made it through alive. Pilots attempted in a Denver simulator to repeat what the Flight 232 crew uh, managed to do that day in Sioux City. With 29 attempts and suggestions from Denny Fitch on how to get the simulator's plane on the ground, the pilots were finally able to do it, albeit still with a crash on the runway. The Flight 232 flight crew did it in only one attempt and saved two-thirds of the people on board. Given the cockpit voice recorder only covered the last 33 minutes and 34 seconds of the flight, the recording on Flight 232 starts approximately 10 minutes after the engine failed, when Captain Haynes was in the middle of speaking with Sioux City Approach Control. So it doesn't capture the moment when the uh, when the engine exploded. And uh, there is something to be said for that, because they managed to keep that plane in the air for 44 minutes, which is incredible considering everything that was wrong with that plane figuring out what led to the problems on united flight 232 was imperative given the fact 427 dc-10s were currently flying throughout the world at the time of the crash if the issue was a specific problem with the dc-10 it meant thousands of lives a day were in danger of suffering the same fate as those aboard flight 232 Obviously, the NTSB assigned to the crash needed to gather every single piece of wreckage, so no matter how tiny, so they could specify exactly what the issue is. The NTSB team knew one thing for sure. The plane was rocked by an explosion in the number two engine, and then all three hydraulic systems completely failed. Given the fact there were three hydraulic systems, having all of them fail at once would take tremendous damage. The leading priority for investigators was locating any pieces of the plane which were missing. Those included the that rear uh, uh, end of the tail cone, the casing on the fan, uh, those sorts of parts of the plane. About 55 miles away from Sioux City, broken pieces of the number two engine, including parts of the tail's hydraulic systems, lie on private farmland. Given the location of the farm and the flight path, path of Flight 232, investigators knew precisely where when the damage to the tail occurred, at 3.16pm when the plane shook from the force of that unseen explosion. 
Examining both the discovered parts and those of the hydraulic systems, still part of the main records in Sioux City, the NDSB located puncture holes in the three hydraulic systems. Within these holes were traces of titanium, the only major source of which within the DC-10, which would line up with the damage Flight 232 sustained, being the fan disc inside the number two engine. The fan disc is exactly what it sounds like. It looks like a big fan which spins within the number two engine about two-thirds of the way back inside it. When the boom occurred on flight 232, it was the number two engine's fan disc shattering, sending out projectiles like buckshot throughout the rear of the plane. This not only severed the second hydraulic line in the tail section, but through a wild coincidence, the other two hydraulic lines as well. It was a one in a billion chance that it would strike all three of these hydraulic systems. They were located in different parts. They, you know, went in, in different part, uh, sections of the plane. And yet it managed through some crazy coincidence to hit all of them. The fan disc, however, was missing, making finding out what uh, why it had failed, impossible. Investigators were able to determine the fan disc would lie somewhere within 36 square kilometers of Iowa farmland, but finding precisely where in that area it might be was anyone's guess. It's Iowa, and it's covered in corn, meaning the helicopters flying over the search area trying to find the fan disc were trying to do so through, given the time of year, corn as high as an elephant's eye. <laughs> Even infrared cameras weren't helping. So the solution, as it turned out, was simple. Wait for the harvest. On October 10th, 1989, Janice Sorensen, who owned a farm with her husband Dale, these cute little old farm couple, uh, was combining in the cornfields when she felt resistance beneath the blades. She got out to examine what could be obstructing the machine and found the broken fan disc sticking up out of the ground like a half-lodged frisbee. Mrs. Sorensen knew exactly what it was. Everybody in the area knew what it was. They knew to keep an eye out for that fan disc. Soon enough, the Sorensons, General Electric representatives, and NTSB investigators, who had all converged on this farm, were all working together with shovels and spades and, and cranes to remove the stuck fan disc from the Iowa cornfield it landed in. Another piece of the fan disc was found not far away, completing the entire part. Basically, the, the bigger part of this fan disc, you have to imagine a clock. And the piece, uh, the smaller piece of the fan disc that was found later was a chunk about from 1 to uh, noon to 4 o'clock. Whereas the rest of the fan disc, that bigger part that Mrs. Sorensen found, that was uh, the rest of that, that bigger chunk of the fan disc. The uh, couple received a $120,000 reward from the engine's manufacturer, General Electric. And, you know, they're a nice little farm couple. They gave most of that to charity, which was very nice of them. So I figured I would mention that. General Electric's labs examined the fan disc and found a 13 millimeter fatigue crack stretching out from the break in the fan disc. At the base of the crack was a minuscule cavity surrounded by what was described as discolored metal. It was basically an impurity called a hard alpha inclusion. This is caused by excessive nitrogen during the forging of the metal. 
This tiny impurity, smaller than a fingernail, spawned a fatigue crack due to the stresses of running on an almost constant basis over the course of 17 years worth of flight. Just over and over and over again. Just this starting up and start going down, starting up and going down. The going like that gave it enough stress that it just, that crack just grew and grew and grew until it finally ruptured. On July 19th, 1989, the fatigue crack in the fan disc finally reached its breaking point. But it could have been discovered when the fan disc went under inspection 16 months prior to the crash, since the crack would have been noticeable at the time. The inspectors simply missed it. The FAA upgraded their inspection procedures after the crash in an effort to keep inspectors from missing another fatigue crack like that in the future, and required DC-10s have shut-off valves added to their hydraulic systems to prevent their entire contents from spilling out in an in emergency and putting any other DC-10 in the same dangerous situation as Flight 232. In 1990, the flight crew of United Airlines Flight 232, including Denny Fitch, were awarded the Polaris Award. Three months later, uh, Captain Haynes, Bill Records, and Dudley Dvorak would return to flying for United. It would take 11 months for Denny Fitch to get back into the cockpit. He had a lot of injuries. Uh, I didn't really write all of them down, but uh, there was uh, there's an interview with him, which if you know about this disaster before, if you knew of Denny Fitch before, then you, you may want to watch this interview. It's actually linked in the sources. It's just a, a really interesting look at this particular plane crash from his point of view. And he talks about how after the plane crash, he was in so much pain and he had so many injuries that they thought that he was never going to fly again. And after 11 months, he was able to get back in the cockpit again. Uh, unfortunately and sadly, Denny Fitch would pass away in 2012 from brain cancer. In the years since the accident, flight attendant Jan Brown Lore made it her mission to correct the airline's policy of placing lap children on the floor in the event of an emergency. Unfortunately, the most recent stories uh, in the news that I could find showed that she has yet to get these airlines and get the industry to eliminate the rule about lap children on the floor. The United Airlines Flight 232 Memorial in Sioux City features a statue depicting one of the most famous images to emerge from the tragedy. In it, Lieutenant Colonel Dennis Nielsen of the Iowa National Guard, who were also there that day to assist with the crash, carried three-year-old Spencer Bailey to safety in his arms. Bailey had been on the flight with his brother Brandon and uh, his mother Frances. Brandon and Spencer survived the crash. Frances did not. Four years after the crash, the movie Fearless would be released to great critical acclaim and won Oscar nomination for Rosie Perez. It's actually a really good movie. I highly recommend it. Any survivor of United Flight 232 must have experienced deja vu upon seeing the trailer, seeing the trailer for the first time. It opens with Jeff Bridges carrying an infant and leading a young boy out of a smoking cornfield. In the film, Rosie Perez is in the same situation as the mother of Evan Zhao, the lap child who died in the crash of United Flight 232 after she was told to put him on the floor and hold him there. The plane crash shown at the end of Fearless is almost beautiful. As Henrik Gorecki's Symphony No. 3 plays on the soundtrack, Jeff Bridges' character walks down the aisle toward where the little boy is sitting all by himself, 
And as he does, he looks into the eyes of the worried people he passes. He rests his hand on their shoulders and offers them reassurances we can't hear. He's very giving them smiles and saying comforting things. And when he reaches the front of the aisle, he can see inside the cockpit where the flight crew is futilely struggling to control the plane, even though all we can see out the windscreen is the ground. Jeff Bridges sits down behind the, beside the boy and says, Put your head down. It will be over soon. Now close your eyes. Everything is wonderful. And then the plane quickly, roughly, and soon enough in a bit of a blur, begins to fall apart. Fire rolls along the ceiling of the building, the ceiling of the plane. The walls crack open and corn spills in. And then in a confusing series of hard to identify images, everything just ends. The crash is over and now this hard part begins. Watching that, I, I rewatched the movie for this particular episode and watching that particular sequence is very difficult. Um, particularly when you've been watching documentaries and interviews and, and reading up on the disaster to talk about it. And then you watch this particular sequence and it's basically that plane crash. I can't imagine being a survivor of that plane crash and then deciding, you know what, I'm going to go see fearless. And then seeing that on the big screen, it's surreal a little bit because of the music. There's just something about it that is, uh, a little, I say beautiful, and I said beautiful before, and I, I feel really strange describing a plane crash in a movie as beautiful, but there's just something about the way that Jeff Bridges' character behaves in the moment that gives it a an edge, that gives it a, a feeling like, um, you know, it's okay. It's, it's something bad is happening and the plane is crashing it, it, you're terrified everybody's terrified everybody around you is terrified but it's okay everything's good you know if you if you die right now it's okay you know it, he doesn't say you know um uh he doesn't say you know you're gonna be okay he doesn't say that uh you know we're, you're gonna live he tells the little boy, it'll be over soon, now close your eyes, everything is wonderful. And the thing is, if that boy dies in that crash, if he dies in that crash, those are the last words that he said. It's impossible to know what other people said who, you know, passed away in the crash. A, a lot of them. You know, there may be other people who um, were sitting next to them and know exactly what they said. And sometimes when I um, do these episodes, you do know what the last thing they said is, especially if you're talking about the flight crew. There's one particular crash where, which I haven't covered yet, where the very last thing that is said on the uh, cockpit voice recorder is one of the crew members saying, knowing full well that the plane is going to crash saying on the flight recorder, Ma, I love you. And then the plane crashes. There's, um, I think of the movie flight where, um, I don't like a lot of the movie flight, but what I do like about the movie flight is the plane crash itself. And, 
uh, Denzel Washington, at one point, the flight attendant comes in and she's very upset and he says, you know, say, say something to your son, say something, you know, for the flight recorder, say something for your son. And understanding that you can have that where the last thing that your family hears is you on this voice recorder, but at least you have something. The passengers in the back don't really have that. Um, you know, they don't, they don't always have that. Um, in certain situations with say, you know, United 93 and other planes that were hijacked during 9-11, they had that because they knew it was going to happen. They knew they could, um, call home and, and call their relatives and say, you know what, something bad is happening here. I'm not going to make it. I want you to know that I love you. And that's, one thing that you can do and, and now you know since we have cell phones and since we're able to do this it's a small thing that means a lot being able to to do that um to be able to to realize in the moment that you know what we're not going to make it through I need to call my mother or I need to call um my husband or I need to call my kids and tell them that you know something's going wrong here uh whatever they have to tell them uh when you're in the when you're in the cockpit you can't actually do that you can't call your your um you know you can't call your wife you can't call your husband you can't call your um your uh, kids or your your mom or, or whoever you need you need to call and so that cockpit voice recorder becomes the thing where you know people are going to remember you by and people are going to know okay this is what happened in their final moments and so that's one of the things that I I'm really fascinated with in regards to this particular disaster because you have a half an hour of these people doing uh, you know, working their asses off to keep this plane in the air. And you can hear Captain L. Haynes on the voice recorder. The one thing about these voice recorders is a lot of times you can't identify who's speaking. In this particular crash, you can, because he's got a very distinctive voice. And so you know it's him when he's talking. And so um, listening to him, um, and there's certain moments... When he, um, excuse me, when he does things like say, you know, well, I don't drink, but I'll serious shit have one. You can, you can, I hear his voice. You can hear him, um, not only being professional, but being very calm, uh, for the most part, you know, in the, in that last minute, he's, he's saying that left, 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 left. And you hear that you hear him say that thing, you, you know, you want to be specific and make it a runway, huh? I mean, he's, this is the thing about that particular flight recorder is that there you can hear this teamwork these people working together and sometimes you can't hear that in flight recorders there's um certain flight recorders where um when you look at uh, when you listen to them or when you look at the transcripts you can tell these people were not working well together at all and in this particular instance all four of these people knew what their jobs were. They knew what they had to do. They were working together very well to keep this plane from falling out of the sky. And the fact that they managed to save two thirds of the people on the plane, it's incredible. 
and I usually don't like saying the word miracle because I'm an atheist and that's not my thing. Uh, you know, I'm more, you know, you worked hard and that's, that's what happened. And I think there is kind of an element of a miracle to this. I, I, you know, but at the same time, uh, just, uh, it's good luck. It's, it's not only good luck, but people who worked really hard knew what they were doing and, it's recorded and you can hear them working together and talking and saying, okay, well, this is, you know, making split second decisions. And, um, uh, the, one of the few, it's, it's one of the few times where I've ever listened to a flight Royce recorder and thought everybody on here is doing exactly what they're supposed to be doing. Um, the same goes for uh, the miracle on the Hudson. If you ever listen to the voice recorder for that particular plane crash, everybody in that recording is doing exactly what they're supposed to do and saying exactly what they're supposed to do. Um, Sully Sullenberger, the uh, pilot on that particular flight, when you listen to the uh, flight recorder, there's this economy of words that he has. Uh, there are certain times where he's trying to figure out what to do, and so he's not really talking a lot. He's not really fl filling the radio with a lot of garbage. You know, he's just, he gets asked questions, you know, can you go here? Unable. Can you go here? Unable. And he's basically doing this sort of thing. And that's the thing with these flight data recorders, is you can tell a lot about the, um, it, the the flight crew and how they're working together if you can hear the, the flight crew so many of these flight recorders the 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 quality is terrible but in this particular instance it's pretty good you can definitely identify who's saying what at least in the case of of captain l haynes you can definitely identify his voice and so the thing about this particular crash is that if you're my age you've seen this video a million times and I just, um, I, when I was kind of, uh, hit a wall in regards to the other disaster that I've been working on, uh, I decided to do this one because I knew I could knock it out of the park in a few days in regards to the script. Uh, it's one of these plane crashes that everybody kind of knows. If you know anything about plane crashes, you know, this particular plane crash, you might not know the number, the flight number, you might not know anybody involved in it, but I do know this. When Denny Fitch passed away a few years ago, there were people on um, that I knew that didn't really know a lot about plane crashes or disasters at all who knew who Denny Fitch was. Because that having Denny Fitch on board that plane is like if you were, you know, driving down the road and your tire blew out and suddenly out of nowhere a van pulled up and it was the you know employees from the tire you know from like coast tire or whatever tire uh distributor you have tire salesman you have and they have every kind of tire in the back of their truck and they're like oh we can just put a new one on for you and th th it was that kind of a thing where it was somebody who knew exactly what needed to be done at exactly the right time showing up you know and that kind of chance that kind of you know, somebody being in the exact right place at the exact right time, you, you kind of wonder what would have happened if Denny Fitch had taken the other flight. And if so many people would have survived, that one little thing that, that maybe those people wouldn't have survived, maybe, he, you know, maybe they wouldn't have lived because he would have gone somewhere else. So, um, 
I'm hoping to get another episode out this week. Uh, we'll see. Um, my throat is still a little uh, iffy, so I apparently talking out is really helping, but, um, I, I'm hoping to get another one out this week. Uh, I really did kind of get out of the habit of doing all of the work that I normally do when I was sick. It was absolutely terrible. Get your flu shots. Um, and with all of that taken care of, really, thank you very much for being patient with me when I've been having my little tiny medical emergency. And, um, <laughs> thank you so much. And until next time, stay safe. Has the winter season taken a toll on your tile, upholstery, carpet? Call Cyclone Cleaners, 570-726-6200. For all your carpet, upholstery, and ceramic tile cleaning needs, it's Cyclone Cleaners, also offering odor treatment and soil and stain guard. Choose the only cleaning company that supplies the water to clean your home and disposes of it when they are finished. Call Cyclone Cleaners to schedule your cleaning today, 570-726-6200.